Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today, we have Nathan Cloud with us. He's the principal at Cloud Capital, where he oversees acquisition strategy and capital raising for the firm. Before starting Cloud Capital, he worked as a senior equity trader for a proprietary trading firm in New York City. Cloud Capital acquires Value Add Multifamily in Texas and Georgia. Value Add Multifamily, speaking my language. Nathan, welcome. How are you? Evan, really appreciate you having me on the show. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for jumping on. So we were just talking before you guys are based out of Dallas. Um, I would love to, to learn about how you got into the real estate industry. Was this something you went to school for? Was, was it something you, you stumbled into? I love understanding how people got into this industry in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the different paths are extremely different as among your guests, but mine was, you know, I went to school for an accounting, uh, jumped in with a big four. I was a horrible accountant. Uh, they wanted to kick me out and I was more than glad to leave. Uh, so then I decided I really wanted to go to Wall Street to trade stocks. That was my passion. So uh, I went and worked as a proprietary trader for a family office and it was a really good setup. Uh, it taught me a lot about risk and, and how to manage capital. So at, at a really early age, straight out of school, uh, not many careers that you can jump into and, you know, they'll give you 10 or 20 million bucks uh, to essentially manage, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So uh, with that role, I did that for about six and a half years. We built multiple strategies. So anytime I had uh, six to eight strategies running that went from building algorithms that traded different efficiencies in the market to longer term strategies, anywhere from, you know, two weeks to a few months. So then after that, I was, you know, really probably about four and a half to five years in, uh, to that career I was on Stone Street having drinks with a few traders from Goldman Sachs and these guys were buying multifamily hmm. and you know I said like a lot of people what is that and you know you read Rich Dad Poor Dad when you're 13 or 15 but and you hear you need to acquire real estate and assets but these guys were buying 50 to 88 to 100 units and they were telling me the cash flow they were making and it took me months and months and multiple conversations to say hey what exactly are you guys doing and they said look you know, like most of my colleagues, you know, we make a good living on the street, but we need to deploy that somewhere that's passive. And so they had third party property managers. They did it right uh, on their deals. And so after seeing their success said, hey, this seems like a really good idea for me to start investing. And I said, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't think I'm necessarily smart enough to have a hedge fund and compete with these guys I was competing against. So I said, look, I think it'd be really smart uh, to branch off and be an operator to buy multifamily. Outstanding. I love it. I love it. So you had spent time with the family office. Sounds like a whole lot of different investment strategies. And um, it, it's, it, I always kind of chuckle that, you know, uh, I, I, I had a tech background and now I deal with like, uh, you know, um, turning units and putting paint on the walls. It's like the most basic business model ever. But um, clearly the multifamily had some a return and a risk profile that was attractive versus some of these more complex investments you were looking at, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, and this is, you know, the common thing probably with your guests, it's tangible, right? You can touch it, but two, it's just the narrative and the story of get rich slowly, <laughs> right. but surely. Right. And I think that just resonates with people. I mean, sure. You know, you can have 10 or 15% of your portfolio allocated to, you know, speculative stocks, right? The fangs or something else, but uh, there's something about, 
getting rich slowly and having cash flow and you don't have that gyration in your portfolio of, you know, going down eight or 10% as we're on CNBC in the next room, you know, even though if you could get a better return in the stock market, which you can go back to all the studies, you're not, but even if you could, that volatility sometimes is really tough to stomach for investors. So somebody that's a high net worth, uh, you know, gentleman or lady, it just makes sense to get cash flow every single month. Yeah, that's the truth. And I mean, you know, a 15% annualized return with consistency and certainty and, and collateralization, you know, over time, that's pretty powerful. So. Yeah, Absolutely. And what have you seen with, with your investor base? I see slowly but surely they're starting to get out of 100% that typical stock and bond portfolio to slowly get in the waters, you know, maybe just 90 with 10 allocated to real estate. But the investors, especially with other sponsors and operators that we work with, their investors are slowly getting from that, you know, 100% allocation down to 20 or 30% even of real estate. I mean, have you, have you seen the same thing once they've had success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> we, um, you know, we see the same thing over and over again. Somebody comes to us, maybe a referral or something like that. Then they test the waters and then they start seeing the distributions. And it, it's not long after that, they go, what else you got? Because this is performing better than, you know, X, Y, Z in our portfolio. And we feel really good about the collateralization. We feel good about you as an operator. And it's to your point, it's a tangible thing. So it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a common path. People definitely are skeptical at first, they want to test it on a smaller investment. Sometimes, sometimes we do really low minimums on a stuff. Just hey, test this, test it out, you know. And then after that, they uh, they bring friends, right? I mean, that's just kind of how the model the model works, right? Yeah, and the depreciation. One thing that we really try to hammer home uh, with our investor base is, look, you know, it's all about the absolute return. It's an right. appreciation that you're getting from this too. You know, when you factor in the capital gains, you know, traditional investments versus alternative, it just, it doesn't even compare. It's, it's not on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. So after you were exposed to this idea, sounded interesting. These guys you knew were having success with it. Um, what was your process like for actually going, you know, to, to be an operator, to find deals? I mean, that's kind of a big leap there. Was there a, was there a big education curve? Did you have a mentor or what did that process look like for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge leap. I guess you could say, and some people go down the education route. One thing I, I didn't know upon moving to Texas about eight months ago is how big that education space is from, you know, a few, uh, I guess, educational seminars, gurus, or whatever you want to call them. I sure. didn't, that doesn't exist in Atlanta or even, you know, New York where I was, uh, with me, you know, just like everything else, if I'm going to jump into something, I think rather than, uh, almost learning from an educational platform. I just want to ride the tail codes, uh, the tail code of somebody that's done it before sure. uh, and then learn from them. So what I did on my first acquisition is I partnered with a group out of California uh, and I essentially learned their process and they had 2,500 units uh, under their belt. So I learned everything and, and they were kind enough to let me jump on an asset management role as well uh, for almost a year on another one of their assets. So before I took in investor capital, friends and family for my first deal, uh, and let's say if it was going to be a smaller 20 or 30 unit deal, I really wanted to go through it for a year to year and a half and really learn the process uh, before I started getting investors to jump into my own deals. So that was an extremely uh, advantageous learning curve to partner with that JV guy who uh, was, has been very successful so far. Learned a lot from the acquisition process, underwriting, asset management, dealing with investors, setting up systems, 
virtual assistants, just the whole nine yards. So I think that really expedited my learning curve. And then two, you know, the background uh, and, and building algorithms, uh, you know, pretty familiar with Excel. And so I was able to essentially bring a lot of value uh, in the underwriting process and, and going out and, and finding deals. Uh, but as you know, it, this is, you know, you said the uh, pain analogy, you know, you're in tech sales and going in now you're putting pain and power washing sidewalks. I mean, it's a simple business, but uh, it doesn't mean it's easy and it's all relationship driven. So this deal that uh, we're hopefully about to get under contract, it was from a relationship, but it takes eight months to 10 months to really get you to that point. You have to perform. If this isn't, you know, you go to a, a weekend seminar and you can raise 10 or $15 million and buy whatever you want. I mean, there is skills involved in getting into a good deal. Yeah, there's so much good stuff in, in what you just said. I, I love the idea of partnering with a very experienced sponsor. And I love the idea of experiential learning. I mean, I've always thought you can kind of, you can kind of get about half of it from reading and in, in you know, taking in information and podcasts. You can certainly learn the the nomenclature and the, and the acronyms and the jargon to sound like, you know, what you're talking about, but you probably only get to get about halfway there. The other half comes from, you got to go do it plain and simple. So partnering with somebody experienced like that uh, certainly shortens that learning curve. I, I love it. And um, you're right. It's, it's a simple business, but it's not easy. A lot of it's relationship driven at the deal. We just closed a deal this month. We've been working on it for like a year and a half. You know? oh, yeah, I saw that. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, and then yeah. we're working on another deal and I've, I've, you know, good friend of mine selling it, right? So it's just like insanely relationship driven. So uh, that, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. But kudos for jumping in there. Um, partnering, you know, sure. That first deal, you didn't own all the equity on it or all the GP equity, right? But you get in, right. learn the processes and systems. And then over time, you're able to, to, to start uh, doing your own deals and taking more of the equity. And, and that's a very natural progression I've seen a lot of people go through. So that's awesome. I want to talk a little bit about market selection. I mean, did you move to Dallas, Texas, specifically for multifamily? You mentioned you're in, you're, you're in Georgia and Texas, but I, I'd love to get your take on market selection for multifamily. Yeah. So uh, one of the main reasons other than we have family and that obviously paid a huge picture was, was I wanted to be in Texas to really grow the business. Yep. And so, you know, we use the same metrics to really evaluate an MSA or, or a market as most individuals, you know, it's just population growth, migration. Uh, we're looking for high median incomes, but really it depends on the sub market more than the market as a whole. You want that insularity that a market can provide, but it's all about picking the right sub markets. And, you know, if you go here in DFW two miles West, uh, you know, of Las Colinas, things get a lot different. Uh, than they actually are in Las Colinas, median incomes, median household prices, crime, et cetera. So from a market uh, perspective, it was Atlanta, DFW, Houston, and then Austin, and then really an hour outside of those primary MSAs. And what we found in like the deal we did in Atlanta, it was about 35 minutes south of, of downtown. Mm -hmm. When you do start getting about that 30 to 45 minutes outside the primary MSA, a lot of institutional capital is not mandated to go out that far. Yep. Uh, then also you'll, you'll have, uh, you know, syndicators that would like to stick to those primary pockets as well. So let's say in, you know, in Atlanta, DFW is very competitive. There might be, you know, 25 to 35 offers on a marketed stabilized B-class deal. I mean, it's nuts. 
yeah. I, I don't have a competitive advantage bidding on those deals. Sure, I have, sure. A, I have a story to tell about that in a minute. Uh, but Atlanta, we might have about 15 to 18 offers. So just inherently, that cuts my pool in half. And then if I go out a little bit further to a very affluent submarket, which we've highlighted, uh, then that might drop down to maybe 10 or 12 offers. So it's all about positioning yourself and knowing who's, I guess, going back to you know the, the previous career, who's on the other side of the trade, who am I competing against? I mean, in DFW, if I'm trying to bid on a 78 vintage deal or 82 vintage deal, 180 units with some type of value add, whether it's real or, or, or broker generated, uh, I'm not going to be able to compete on that deal. I mean, I might be penciling out, you know, 15 or 18 million. Let's say it's 18 million and the deal is going to trade for, you know, 19 and a half. Like I just, I know that I'm not going to be able to compete with those other groups that go to the education seminars and they have a different business model than mine and what my equity demands. Uh, whereas Atlanta, I have a bigger competitive advantage. Houston, I think I have a higher competitive advantage as well. And Austin is just so difficult to break into because it's a third of the transaction volume as you're going to see in a Houston, a DFW or an Atlanta. So institutional capitals flock into Austin. If there's a stabilized class B deal, I'm just not going to be able to compete with a single check writer there. Yeah, that's right. They just look at a place capital and watch Austin continue to grow. It's, it's insane. Austin is such a crazy story. We're, we're about an hour south in San Antonio. It's a completely different world, um, uh, you know, than Austin. Austin is just, uh, you know, we, we thought we'd seen growth the last 10 years in Austin. And then, you know, Joe Rogan and Elon Musk moved there and you're going, I think we're onto this. We're, I think we're starting a new level. And it's funny, Austin's infrastructure, not, they weren't really set up for the growth they had 10 years ago. And they're really not set up for it now, but it's a hot spot, and people continue to move there. Tech headquarters continue to move there. It's an exciting story. Um, are you looking in Austin as well, or do you primarily yeah. stick to around the San Antonio area? Nope. I like to go to Austin, you know, and visit. <laughs> um, it's close by. It's cool. It's a completely different vibe than San Antonio, but uh, you know, the cap, the cap rates and the, the prices, I just, uh, we did look at a deal I was trying to help somebody with to, to, to buy, looked at it. And I was just, uh, you know, the cap rates and the prices, I just, uh, I'm like, Hey, this is a different world. And for us, like we're, we're trying to buy, you know, two, three deals a year and we can mm -hmm. find that in San Antonio. And I don't see any reason not to, to continue to buy in San Antonio as long as that's the case. And it just makes it so much easier for the whole team, less deals coming across our desk. You know, we're not trying to evaluate a hundred different markets. So that's just a personal choice we've made, but it's, it's interesting to see this stuff in Austin. It's a, it's a sexy market. Um, We've done some stuff up there in the past. We've got a land deal up there right now that's going real well, but um, interesting, interesting market. But I, I, I like your idea of, of saying, hey, we're, we're picking a major metro, um, a lot of competition, but then you can, you can see a lot of that competition drop away, just going a little bit outside. And you're still seeing a lot of the benefits of being that major metro. You're still seeing the you know, median incomes that you want. Um, you're probably able to get the rent, rent bumps you want slightly outside that market. I, I, I like that approach a lot. Right. And, and the sub-market is incredibly important. That's the most important yep. piece of the puzzle for us. You know, again, we're looking at the same thing. We want high median incomes. You know, we want anything over 45 to 50K because if you're going to go in and implement a value add plan and hopefully increase rents, first of all, you'll find uh, a property in a rent roll that has below market rents. But if you're going to increase rents, let's say 100 to $150 across the board, your tenant base better be able to afford that increase. And if you are in a very affluent submarket, you know, typically it's no problem. There are a reason they're renting there. They think they're getting a the deal. Uh, you can go in, you can 
you know, essentially take it to the next level, amenity wise, interior, exterior upgrades, but then increase that rent $100, $125. If you jump into, you know, certain areas south of Dallas, south of Atlanta, median incomes are in the 30s, they're just not going to be able to afford that rent bump. So while, uh, you know, there's just execution risk in that strategy, and even though you can increase rents $150, they're not going to be able to afford it. So then you're going to have an occupancy issue. So the submarket and the affluency of the tenant base is extremely important. Yeah, that's such a huge point for people to, to understand is uh, just because you can raise the rents. I mean, it's, it's always a market. You've got to have, you've got to have an, a customer base that, that can afford your product, whether or not they want it and whether or not you make it real nice, that's great. But um, you got median incomes in the 30K range and you just do the math on what is your manager doing on site. If there's a 3X, um, you know, gross income requirement, if rent's $1,000 and that person needs to make $3,000 gross, you know, you just kind of reverse engineer what the median income needs to be. And you don't want to, you don't want to price yourself out. We did a deal in kind of a tougher area, San Antonio, where we did, we did a renovation and we kept the rents the same, but we put the utilities back. So it was an effective rent increase, but we just couldn't raise rents $150 in, in that market. It's just, it didn't support it. And so you have to understand yeah. that going in, um, do all the good point all the capex and renovations you want if if you if your submarket can't um, absorb it then then it's going to be tough and i i really like what you said about submarket and people ask me about different markets is is this a good market is san antonio a good market and it's like well if that's the if that's the extent of the question sure great yeah but i mean could i show you some terrible pockets and submarkets in san antonio that i would never buy a deal in absolutely you know and can I show you a property five miles away from there that I, I, that I would love to buy? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's what we're after in real estate and that's the inefficiency. It's the reason Amazon is not doing what you and I are doing, right? It's so relationship-based. It's so specific to the sub-market, the deal, sometimes even the, even the street it's on, right? Isn't that the truth? When somebody says, well, what do you think about San Antonio? And then they want, want to just pass because they just don't inherently like San Antonio. Right. Well, okay. What if we are buying in a, let's say 55 uh, median incomes, there is three or 4% of additional income. We know just by looking at yourself, you know, a hundred deals uh, over the last five months that we can bump that up to seven to 9% additional income, just automatically provide a value boost. We know that occupancy is 9%, or excuse me, vacancy is 9%. We know the submarket is around seven and a half to six. So there's another boost. But yeah, you have to know your backyard. So if you feel extremely comfortable in doing so, and OPEX might be trending at 55%, you know that you can get that down to 48. I mean, knowing your market, like the back of your hand is extremely important, but it doesn't necessarily depend on the market as much as the submarket. It could be a, a sleepier sub-market. But yep. if there's only three or four market rate deals uh, with a large blue collar workforce housing tenant base, it could be a slam dunk. But you, then you have to evaluate after the sub-market the deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's such, it's such a deal specific uh, thing, which was part of the fun too, you know, get in and, and try and uncover all this stuff and, and make it happen. How has 20, so we're, we're talking right now in September, uh, 2020, kind of coming into Q4, 2020, one of the more interesting years on record. What, what have you seen this year that, uh, you know, ups, downs, crazy stuff. How's 2020 treated you guys? You know what? And this is coming from a guy with uh, only doing this for about a year and a half as the lead sponsor and I guess close to three and studying. Uh, 
this has been a very interesting year, uh, like a lot no of doubt. people would probably say. Uh, I mean, one thing, the debt. <laughs> I mean, you know, anytime your debt, your agency debt drops 60 to 80 bips uh, in the course of 10 months, uh, that's a massively material drop. I mean, that's a, that, that, that really impacts these deals. Uh, the cash on cash uh, of these deals that we're now underwriting, you know, post-COVID or during COVID is much greater than, than pre-COVID. I mean, it was tough to find a deal in Atlanta or DFW with a over a seven to seven and a half percent cash on cash. Yep. Very difficult. Now, across the board, a seven and seven and a half percent is fairly common, but our exit's getting a little squeezed. So right. the deals underwrite different than they did last year. Uh, we've used this time to, uh, you know, like a lot of people, take brokers to lunch, you know, grab a drink and really focus on the capital raise component. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've really upped our mark. We brought on a CMO. Uh, we really upped our marketing. Uh, and then we've really focused on the capital raise. And, you know, while people are working at home, they're in front of their computer, we've been able to get a hold of a lot of individuals that, that have expressed an interest in wanting to, you know, either for the first time invest in a deal or they've already invested in multiple and they want to see what we have coming up the pipeline. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. The debt side has just been, I mean, you're never going to win all of it, right? You're never going to get easy equity, cheap debt, low prices, big rent. But I mean, all the things we want, look at the menu. You're never going to get everything on the menu at one time. And there's certainly some things on the menu in 2020 that are, that are hard to swallow, you know, a year or 18 months of PI reserve with the, with the lender. Okay. That's a, that's kind of a black eye on our underwriting and we've got to have had to be creative on how we address that. Now it's fairly easy to address with just kind of moving a few things around. Um, so that's kind of a headwind, right? These, these uh, COVID escrow requirements, but the, the rates are like uh, a gift from heaven. I mean, it's, it's just, and, and that's, how it, that's how it always is. And I try and tell people that are newer is, is uh, listen, there's always going to be headwinds. There's always going to be something working in your benefit, right? You know, whether it's population growth or in this case in 2020, the rates, and we'll, we don't know what the future holds, but um, pretty good time to put some long-term fixed rate debt, uh, sub 3%, some cases, just mind boggling. Yes, it is. And you know what? We're always going to feel, no matter what the circumstances are, like we're overpaying. Yep. As a sponsor. Yep, I absolutely. Mean, and, and this is what people, and I had this all the time and, you know, uh, we're really trying to educate in our equity on, on where we think uh, the market is trading at versus where we want to trade it at. Yep. Uh, you know, this is where it's trading. Obviously we'd like to, you know, get a 10% discount uh, from a seller, but that's just not where, that's not where the market is. Uh, so it's, you know, difficult in having those different conversations uh, to really see where deals are penciling out, but we're always going to fill as a sponsorship group that we're overpaying and maybe just pushing the envelope slightly in order to get the deal. There's just no way we can jump into, you know, a 20 hour deal anymore. They just don't exist. It's been, I couldn't agree more. It's been tough. You know, I, I always say uh, people are only disappointed in life when their expectations are violated. So that's it. You know, if, if you're getting in a, in a car ride and man, you're expecting traffic and it's going to take three hours, you're not really upset. You just kind of deal with it. If you're getting in the car ride and you're expecting 15 minutes and it's three hours, your expectation is violated and you're upset, right? Um, and, and so if you've got expectations of a 20% annualized return, a 25% annualized return, um, that's, that's just not, that's just not happening, you know? And so it's, it's kind of, it's interesting setting expectations with equity and um, they're, they're still, the math of it is a phenomenal investment, right? It's just not what, you know, 
you're not, you're not pushing out 30% annualized returns on deals. Um, but there's lots of other advantages. So the, the expectation setting is just critically important uh, for sponsors and for, for passive investors to understand, right? I completely agree. And that's the majority, usually not on the first call, but usually the second or the third call. That's where mm-hmm. we're really setting that expectation. The first mm-hmm. call, as you know, is who are you? Who's the team? You know, yep. what's your track record and experience? And then, you know, if, if you guys both align, uh, then you move on to the second or the third calls and then you show some deals that you might have passed on, reasons why you passed, you know, add them to your newsletter, add them to your distribution list so you can go through deals that you passed on. That way, when there is a deal that comes live, then you'll know exactly what we look for. And if it's a good fit, it's a good fit. And if it's not, you know, it's not. Uh, there's just, there's no, there's no sales to this. If it fits yeah. your investment methodology, great. And if not, maybe we'll sync up on the next one. That's such a great point. Yeah, there's, there's no sales to this. It's, it's, we're working hard every day to present an opportunity. If it's fit, great. If it's not, please don't, don't shoehorn it, you know? Um, and you know, any good sponsor is passing on a lot of deals and looking at a lot of deals and is kind of the duck, uh, on the lake with the legs going crazy under the water. <laughs> the duck looks calm, but you know, there's a lot of work every day to vet deals and pass on most of them. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's no sales. If it's a fit, great, uh, move, move forward on it. In terms of criteria, you guys kind of have your markets picked. Um, what what is your what is the box that, that the deal needs to fit in in terms of vintage size and, and that kind of thing for you guys? Yeah, so and, and it varies uh, going into you know a sub market that is extremely thriving. There's a new development you know a mile away versus yep. sleepy right with only two or three market rate deals. But our typical buy box is 1980 plus. We'll go into late 70s if it's a really good fit. Uh, if it's not boiler chiller system, uh, we'll go into seventies, but typically it's, you know, 150 plus units, five to 30 million. If it's above 20 million, we'll need a JV with another strong operator. Uh, and then in those primary markets we outlined, but you know, that's our buy box. Uh, but the main gyrations on the deal with what we're looking for, like deal specific one, what's the story of the seller. And I think this is extremely important, right? You know, why is, is this person selling the deal? Have they owned it for 10 plus years or is this on its third or fourth value add turn this cycle and you can still increase rents $200 uh, like, like, like the commentary from our good broker friends. Granite and stainless. Uh, hey, there we go. Put a backsplash, raise rents 200, call it a day. There it is. Uh, so it's the story of the seller. Then it's also, you know, is this, is there a delta below market rents? Right. Is there just an organic rent bump or are we going to have to actually increase rents through interior renovations, taken to the next level in the submarket? There's more risk to the latter rather than the former. Uh, additional income opportunities. I mean, we keep folders in Google Drive of every single deal. I mean, if a deal comes online in one of our target markets, uh, in that submarket, we have five to 10 deals where we can gauge the performance just to give us a baseline. So we're looking for additional income opportunities, rubs. You know, if it's, if it's, uh, you know, master metered, is there an opportunity to increase that uh, OPEX? What is it trending for that deal in the sub market? Uh, what is our, you know, economic vacancy breaking down those line items? If there's high bad debt and a very good sub market, that's an opportunity. Yeah. If there's high bad debt and a lower social economic sub market, that's risk. I mean, we're not going to be able just to burn that off and, and that be the value add story. Uh, expenses. Has there been a water conservation program? Uh, could we potentially lower payroll? 
a hundred dollars a unit. You know, again, we have baselines for everything. Essentially, we're trying to de-risk the entire transaction uh, to say, look, what is our baseline best and worst case scenario? And if we have a close enough delta where we're hitting our target returns, then we'll move forward in the deal and submit. Uh, also taxes. I mean, we, we work with a tax consultant on each deal. The, the, each county is different. Right. And, you know, people really need to understand that. You know, I've seen models with other sponsors asking us to jump in and, and uh, the tax assumption is, is not correct. So uh, our, our tax consultant pays a, a huge integral part uh, to really pencil out these deals. I mean, there's some counties in Texas where you have a 40% assess ratio. I mean, if you're underwriting this just off the cuff at, you know, 85 or 90, like you typically would, the deal's not going to pencil. Yep. So it's just small things that just over time you learn these things that you're not going to read in a book or, you know, uh, maybe or not here on a podcast. I mean, you just have to go out there and do it to really get that experience. Yes. Yeah, so, so many great points on there, especially on the tax assessment. I mean, for, for where we are, that's our, that's our biggest line item. And so, um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of exciting every year when you see the new assessment come out and is it, is it crazy or is it reasonable? And then we get our attorney to go uh, fight it, whatever it is, but uh, that's a, that's a huge variable. So uh, you're right. You, you've got to learn this stuff by, by doing it. Uh, I want to, I want to play a little game and this is a game I, I, kind of go through myself a lot, but you know, exit cap rates, this is such a almost maddening number to, to plug into a model, right? Cause you change it by 50 basis points and it, it goes from a, a 15 IRR deal to a 25 IRR deal, right? It's just this, this crazy variable that nobody can guess in five years, but I would love to get your commentary having been on wall street, having been in the business now on um, you know, the, the feds monetary policy this year, where rates are, um, and, and what are you guys' thoughts? I mean, we can't underwrite lower exit cap rates. It just, it would be too easy to make deals pencil that way, but uh, we could be headed there. I'd just love to get your feedback on, you know, what is you guys kind of current thinking in the firm on, um, on where you put exit cap rates in the future? Yeah, well, this is a great question, and this is probably the number one variable other than what you pay for the deal. Yeah. That, that makes the deal work or not, or what you present to your equity. So uh, Mnuchin and Power One right now, again, they stated, you know, they're going to keep rates low for three years. So we can expect additional cap rate compression. So if coronavirus, which uh, there'd be a vaccine, hopefully in the next three to six months, uh, then we have that problem essentially solved. I mean, there will be some impacts from workforce housing and those workers not being able to go immediately back to small business. So there will be an effect but from an interest rate perspective and a cap rate, uh, first of all, going in caps, I think it's just wildly misconstrued. And this is just my own opinion. Uh, cap rates to me are the most meaningly metric, meaningless metric for, for a value add deal. And what do I mean? So if there's, let's say we're in Dallas, we see a 5.1 or 5.2 cap rate going in, yep. not tax adjusted, which is going to be lowered on our end. So going in, I'm just inherently from looking at so many of these deals going to know that that's a stabilized deal. There's not a whole lot of value add that's meat on the bone because the brokers are extremely smart and they know how to price deals. So if there's a five, one, five, two cap, I just automatically know that's going to be a stabilized deal. We're probably not going to be able to hit our returns, even though we'll still underwrite. If there's like a four, four to four, six cap rate uh, again, the brokers are extremely smart. There typically is a lot more meat on the bone left in that deal. So it's better to buy a lower cap rate deal than a higher cap rate deal is what we've done in analyzing a hundred deals uh, on the exit cap. 
the answer is it depends. Yeah. But let's say we're going to go in uh, and then we're, our going in cap is 5%. Right? We're just naturally going to go to 50 bips, usually 10 bips a year, which is, which is standard. standard. Uh, if yep. we were ever to buy a deal for you know, five and our exit's 5-2, we'll be able to hit our returns. That could happen. Uh, but the risk associated in that additional, you know, 30 or 40 bips is dramatic on the back end. It's 30% lower. Uh, so your equity might not be with you on the next deal. Uh, so that's extremely important to go ahead and revert those cap rates. But this is a unique situation of a deal that we're negotiating right now. Our going in cap rate is a 5.8. Okay. So on the T12, it's about a 5.1. Over the past year, they've done an incredible job. Uh, to increase NOI. So we're essentially acquiring a 5A cap. Okay, what's going to be my terminal exit rate on that? I'm not going to go to a 6466 on the exit because right. that's not where the submarket of the market is traded almost right. ever, right? So my reversion cap is going to be pretty much probably about 30 bips, 20 bips in line with my purchase. And I think that's warranted. And, you know, that might initially raise some red flags when we bring out the deal to our equity, but I think it's an exercise where you just explain, you know, the rationale behind. So, so that's the, it depends factor. If we're purchasing this or basing that terminal value on a T12 value. Yeah. We're almost 80 bips higher. So that's the art and the science to it. But uh, I think with that strategy, you know, either reversion 50 bips or explaining that you're getting at a really good cap rate, the difference I think your equity would be, you know, reasonable to go along with you. That's great. That's a great explanation. I appreciate that. It's definitely art and science and you can't just slap 50 bips over a prevailing market cap rate today and call it good. It just, you know, it doesn't make sense to put a deal like a clean deal in a good sum market like that in the mid sixes on a, on a, on a cap rate, uh, on a, on a reversion cap. Um, yeah, you so, go back and you look at, you know, the great financial crisis and other crises that happen in your market. First of all, what did occupancy drop down to? And DFW is like 87 to 88%. Okay, mm -hmm. if I, my break even occupancy is around 82, 80, I know that I have a large padding uh, for my default risk. And that's yep. the same thing with cap rates. What did cap rates go to? That's why I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to pay a crazy premium on C-class deals in DFW because I know that my caps rates went to six and a half, seven percent in the great financial crisis. So I'm not going to purchase a class C deal at 4.8. Uh, now class B, it went all the way to close to six. So, you know, I don't think that a, a five, seven exit is, is too aggressive for that. You just have to know where it's been and, and really stress test that assumption, occupancy and, and exit caps. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. That's great commentary. And uh, the nice thing about multifamily, among many things, is as long as we put the right debt on it, if we're in a higher cap environment, you know, we don't have to say we've got good occupancy and, and, and good operations. We don't have to sell. You know, if a worst case scenario is hang on and cash flow for another two years, that's a pretty good worst case scenario, you know. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, if, if, you, if you structure it right on the front end, you're in a position to do that. Uh, it's like, um, you know, it, it's like nothing happened. If you just be able to operate occupancy's good and keep, keep, um, keep rocking and rolling, sending out cash flow checks or, or whatever the case is. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good downside to ride through, uh, you know, whatever market cycles are, are ahead of us. Um, so yeah, you're not going to have a lot of uh, disgruntled equity if you're still giving them a six to 8% return when the stock market's falling, you know, 20 or 30%. Yeah, uh, you're just not. Yeah, uh, you know, 
you can have a three to maybe three and a half percent dividend on a high yield portfolio. Honestly, you know, there's, there's not even a comparison real estate to, to a high yield portfolio. Uh, right. Unless the liquidity, the liquidity is the biggest component sure. and the biggest pro. But other than that, uh, from every other standpoint, real estate's the winner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just goes back to what you were talking about earlier about this being a tangible real asset. It does not react to markets instantly, uh, does not react to, I mean, you know, even this year with Corona, it's been some craziness, but like our occupancy and collections haven't, <laughs> haven't really changed uh, materially, which is, you know, we've been preaching multifamily for years and now we, now we get to kind of see it in action in, um, in some uncertain times. So, uh, you know, it just underscores that we want, you know, we want to keep doing this. So, um, that, that's great. Well, th this has been a great look at, uh, kind of, you know, what you guys are doing with the firm, your story. I really appreciate it. If somebody listening, Nathan wants to connect with you, what's a good Avenue for that? You can go to the website, which is cloudcapitalllc.com, or you can reach me at Nathan at cloudcapitalllc.com. Fantastic. We'll link to that in the show notes. Do people ever get your firm confused with like a, you know, Silicon Valley VC firm with the word cloud in there? I understand why you used it being your last name, but is there any confusion there? Or people think you're doing software startup stuff or, or is it pretty clear? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, every, every third email. You know? I bet. <laughs> nice. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you sharing your story. We'll link to the website in the show notes and wish you continued success. Congrats on closing that most recent deal. Uh, Devin, I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.